right, folks. Shalom and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom and welcome to Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov, where Mike Foyer joins me for Spiritual Cafe. Rabbi Mike, Shalom, Shalom. Oh, it's good to see you, Ishai. It's welcome. great to be with you, and we are here a little bit earlier. We're recording earlier in the week, and that's because tonight I'm flying out for a eight-day journey uh, through Phoenix, in Arizona. It's going to uh, be hot. It's going to be hot, the, the dark, deep desert of Arizona there. Actually, I really like Phoenix. It's, it's a really beautiful and interesting place. And then uh, Los Angeles. And actually, I'm heading for the first time in my life to San Diego. Are you going to see the zoo? I don't know about the zoo. I was thinking about the Midway Museum. They've, they've got a, a, a aircraft carrier over there. It's a big Navy town, right. as is well known. And I, I actually, um, I'm interested in that kind of stuff. So I was thinking about heading out to, to, uh, to do a little bit of... Uh, of checking out the Navy, that be that as it may, um, we are taping earlier than we usually tape. That's great, and I hope we'll be able to uh, do a show next week. We'll see when I get back how that works. In any case, BeitMidrashSulamiyakovSulamiyakov.com, uh, where we talk about the Torah portion especially, and we're also talking about the times. Uh, right now, we are in the, what, second, third day of Elul, depends when you're going to hear this. Yeah, that's true. Right? <laughs> And, and uh, Elul, that's the preparation month. The king is in the field, as the expression goes. Uh, and that means that, that God is close by to us. He is ready to, to hear us. And in fact, Rabbi Mike, I, uh, one of the great teachings that I learned uh, from the Nitivot Shalom, which is uh, a teaching that is not, it's a Hasidic uh, a Torah that is not often heard, is that there are two 51-day cycles in the Jewish calendar. One uh, is from Erev Pesach, Yudalid, all the way to Shavuot, 51 days, and one is from Rosh Chodesh Elul, all the way to Shemini Atzeret, Simchat Torah. These are two uh, um, periods in the year of, redemption, of, of repentance, of fixing, of effort, of work, and these two 51-day calendars correspond to Ana Hashem Hoshia, Na, God, Please rescue us, give us salvation, but na means please. Na also stands for the numerical, the number 51. God, please uh, uh, give us success. Na, again, please, uh, uh, standing for 51. So those are the two 51-day cycles. We are right in the beginning of a 51-day cycle that's going to bring us through the high holy days. That's right, and, and that notion, Hamelech Basadeh, that the king is in the field, um, always speaks to me because it's rooted in the idea that Isaiah says is in the voice of God, of course, is um, seek me when I am found. Right? This is eight ratzon. It's a time of favor. It's an opportune moment. Right? The king is no longer over there in the palace on the throne behind all the guards and the and the ministers and etc. And you got to get an appointment. And maybe you're important. Maybe you're not. He's right here with you. And it's not just oh wow, like I can just ask him whatever I want since he's worth missing, here with me. It's also a time when we see whether it really matters to me, mm-hmm. right? If the king's far away and hard to get to, I might actually have a legitimate gripe in saying I can't get there. But if the king is right up next to me and I don't take the opportunity to figure out what I really want, then the reality is I don't really want it. Well, I think what, what's hidden within your words is that it's a time to do stuff. And I don't know. Uh, meaning to say it's the time of opportunity, right? But I don't know if a lot of people understand what that means. You know, sometimes I hear the words from the outside. I listen to, I listen to them as though I'm listening it through somebody else's ears. And I hear the words spiritual. It, it sounds fluffy. It sounds fluffy. 
Uh, let me give you a little example. Can I give you an awesome example that happened to me recently? Um, look at my lip here, Rabbi Mike. Do you, do you see a little unpleasant indentation here on my lip? Yeah, it's it looks very a small. It looks a little painful. I've, right in the bottom of my bot, the center of my bottom lip, something developed, something unpleasant. I don't know. Some kind of you could call it a kind of zit or something between a, a cross between a zit and a uh, a cold sore. I don't know what it was. I got a little nervous. I, I went to the doctor. Uh, he's, he, he ruled out anything uh, serious. Uh, I hope he's right. But uh, um, I look, he told me he thought it was, it was a busted salivary gland in my lip. I'm like, I didn't even know that salivary glands are in your lip. I didn't know you could drool from your lips. Right. I didn't know that. But it turns out there's a lot of things we don't know about our, own, about our very own, the thing that we're walking in, right, which is our body. Truth. And um, he said, uh, no, it's this other thing, which is this busted salivary gland. I looked it up. And it turns out that it's, uh, it happens often, this thing, for people who bite down on their lip. Mm. It happens to be that I bite down on my lip when I'm angry. Mm. It happens to me that I go, I bite down on my lip. It's like some kind, of, some, kind of, some kind of weird habit. And I was like, this thing is a signal to me that I've got to, over this, this thing. Now, where I live on the Mount of Olives across from Temple Mount, a lot of times you will get boo-boos. <laughs> When, when God is, like, angry with you, like, it will happen out there. Uh, you know, take, you, you don't have to believe me, but I'm telling you, that's the way it is in our lives, especially dealings with things of the mouth. Huh. The mouth. Lashon Hara, that kind of stuff, you'll get a stricken on it. Stricken on the mouth, really. That's a, that's a really great blessing. Yeah. The rest of us just blunder, keep, keep, keep. Yeah, blunder through life without any warning. So, so, so this, th- this thing, I was, like, I was like, this is coming from my anger. It's a response to my anger. I have to overcome my anger. And, 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 and the other day, I got angry, and I bit down on my lip, and I'm like, oh, oh, and it hurt a little bit. because, mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's the anger right there. That's what you have to work on. Here's yeah. a very physical reminder of you got to work on a characteristic trait, a spiritual thing, an emotional, psychological thing. And I, I want to help people understand the idea of working this Elul. What does that mean? So it, it has to do with the other meaning of that phrase I used, eight ratzon. Eight ratzon can be translated in two ways. One is what I said, a time of favor. Right Here's the king. He's with you. Don't blow it. Use the time. But what's the literal translation of eight ratzon? How would you literally translate if you'd never heard the phrase? A uh, period of will. Yes. It's a time of will. Right? This is a time when we need to expand our will. We need to tap into our capacity to change. There is nothing more powerful as a tool for change than will. And there is nothing which holds us back greater than a lack of will to actually change. Right? Things begin intellectually. Yours is a great example. I'm sure you have thought about the fact that ne- anger is a negative element of your life sure. many times before. Right? Suddenly, a physical manifestation gave you a much more visceral sense of like, no, I, this is not how I want to be. And it's a powerful image you said that, that you had the behavior and it hurt a little bit. And that little bit of pain triggered a deeper will saying, no, that's not how I want to be. This is what Elul is meant to do for us. We are sensitizing ourselves to our deeper will in order that we can engage it in change. As far as I can tell, most of us and the world as individuals and the world as a whole, what holds us back from being who we desire to be is a lack of will. In many ways, you could say, in fact, that the great blessing the Jewish people are meant to bring into the world through the Torah is to teach the world how to be what we desire to be. Who out there has not had the experience of repeated negative behavior? 
right? I know that I'm doing what I'm doing right now, and I know that it's wrong. And last year, I was doing the same thing. I don't want to do this anymore. So much of the power of the Torah is in training us toward the unfortunately very gradual and difficult process of actually changing self. Because there, it is no, there's nothing more difficult, in my experience, than changing deep ingrained habits and character traits. And yet, there's nothing more liberating and ennobling to be the human being you desire to be. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to just give a few little examples of, of things that are such great Elul exercises. Certainly, uh, as we just talked about, talk, working on your anger, working on your speech. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say you curse. Uh, pulling back on that, making your mouth a holy vessel. Uh, let's say you like to gossip. This morning, I, I was thinking about something I wanted to tell my wife. Somebody wrote me an email, and I kind of wanted to make fun of that person a little bit. And I was about to tell my wife, and I'm like, nope. Pull back on that. You know, pull back on slander and on, on speaking improperly. A control of the eyes, making sure that the eyes don't uh, go to places that they're not supposed to go. Uh, the Torah lays out what you're allowed to look at, what you're not allowed to look at. Um, uh, what else? I would say the first step always is noticing. Meaning... Those are behaviors that you've identified either in yourself. I, I want to help people. Be, I want to help people like. No, but they, I'm telling you right now, noticing is the first step to all those things. Right. Many people are unaware. Mm. Right, the, the eyes is a great example. Mm. Many people are not so conscious of the fact as, as they're on the bus or walking the streets or whatever that they're looking at things that are having a negative influence upon mm. them. Or many people are unaware. I've had this experience before with when it comes to sort of negative speech and gossip, of stopping someone in the middle of a conversation saying, "I'm sorry, I, I don't really want to talk about this." And they're usually quite shocked. Right. So um, I, another thing I would say is, is clarifying your values through where you give your time. Mm -hmm. Right? Giving time to the people who you love mm -hmm. and the people who really need it um, is a very important act in Elul. This is a time of values clarification. And there's nothing more precious that we have than our time. I think also uh, prayer and the study of Torah and dedicating time to those things, really uh, carving out a time, time blocking, they call it today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of just unadulterated Torah time. Uh, this show, by the way, can count towards that, listening to this show while doing so whatever. I know a lot of uh, folks uh, like uh, the director general of the Jewish community of Hebron, Uri Karzan, who uh, uh, I work with. Uh, in the Jewish community of Hebron, and who does an amazing job of um, of steering that uh, embattled community towards normalization and becoming the world class place that it's supposed to be. He listens. He listens to the show on Fridays as he's uh, getting the house ready for Shabbat, uh, and 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 many others. So that counts. But certainly dedicating time this Elul to the more important things. And 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 a, and a, I'm just throwing out a suggestion here: Thursday nights, Thursday nights. Make it a Torah night. Um, dedicate, uh, go somewhere. That's another uh, rabbinic kind of suggestion. Go somewhere else. Yes. Get, get, get out of your thing. It's, it's, very, it's a very powerful act. Um, one of the really key tools for dedicating your time to Torah learning in particular is what's called being kovea itim la Torah. You, you, you fix times. And it can be, it's not about the quantity in the beginning. It's about the commitment to the inflexibility. If I decide I'm going to spend 10 minutes... <laughs> Commit, did you hear that, folks? Co commitment to inflexibility. You haven't heard that too much. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, well, we live in a world where everyone like, wants to be flexible and accommodating, yeah. And, yeah. and that's fine. It's great. It's beautiful. But one of the problems with that is, you know, God called us a stiff-necked people. Right. 
right? And w- that's usually read in a negative sense. Right. But there are one or two places where it comes out as a positive because God realized that once he got us to accept the Torah, that stiff-neckedness would become one of our greatest assets. That's right. Because we're completely committed. And so the commitment, if you're going to say, and it's Yomam Valila, morning and night, 10 minutes, one of the great uh, methods that I encourage my students is reading the Bible. Most people, Jews, Gentiles, although in my experience, Gentiles more than Jews, have actually read the whole Bible straight through. Mm-hmm. But, but just pick it up at the beginning. Right. And two chapters a day, one in the morning, one at night. Take two a day, one in the morning, one at night. Right. It's a, it's a, in, in your native language, it's always better, of course, in Hebrew if you can, in the original, but that takes time. And it's a transformative experience, not just because you'll actually see the grandeur of the entire Tanakh, but because it's a commitment. You don't go to bed right. until you've read those two chapters. And it might only take you 10 minutes, but it's the commitment which can really change. Folks, uh, a, a lot of folks are, are listening to this right now and are thinking, yes, y- yes, I want to do something like that. And I want to quote my good friend Ezra Halevi, who many, many years ago at a conference said something to the effect of, those moments of clarity, let's pull them out of this session. Let's pull them out of like this moment and like really really nail them up on the wall of our lives. Let, let's make them really, let's take this commitment right now in our hearts that we feel and say, yes, I'm going to do it and really, really do it. And then, then it's what you said, that, that liberating aspect, that I'm not chained by my own characteristics or the ways things have, de- have developed. I got to remind, tell you one more thing. My father, Allah Shalom, he uh, was a great, both my parents are great gardeners. They're just gifted gardeners. I did not inherit that specific gene. But they are gifted gardeners. Uh, my, my father was a gifted gardener. And uh, not only that, he, since in America, sometimes the lawn next door is c- just simply an c- extension of your lawn, there's no like fence, then he would be concerned with the other people's garden that it would reflect well in the whole area. Any case, our next door neighbor, Gail, God bless her, in, uh, in New Jersey, uh, when we were living back there, um, she had this Asian tree. And it was this big, tall, weird thing, you know, just like Asian things. It's all like just different. <laughs> it, it doesn't look right in North America. Right. It's just weird. But, you know, it's like, it's like cool. You know, it's just. Well, it's only weird because it's North America. If you were right. in Asia, it would look normal. It would look normal. That's right. So he said to me one time, he would go and trim it for her. He would knock on her door and say, Gail, do you mind if I trim it for you? And she'd be so happy. But, yeah, that's what he would do because he wanted to landscape the whole thing. Sweet. So he, used to, he told me one time, he said to me, Isha, you see that tree? If I don't trim it, it will choke itself. Mm. It will hurt itself. It does not have, I had to hear the word that I'm adding, it does not have the ability to self-regulate properly in the way that it, it will just actually hurt itself through its continued expansion and growth. You need regul- it needs regulation. It needs man's consciousness. And, and our behavior is like that. Sometimes it has grown a certain way. We've got to trim it back. We've got, we've got to bring it into, we've got to tighten the screws. Well, I... I, I on that note, I'd like to add something personal to my recommendation of, of reading the Tanakh. Is that when I was time for me to graduate university back in 1996, low these many moons ago, um, and I was not living the life as you see me now, was not uh, a committed religious Jew, and I had this sense that the whole world was open before me, and I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what I was going to do, and for some reason, Allah I thought of reading the Tanakh. I said to myself, I'd had a like decent sort of general Jewish education, but I'd never read the whole Bible. So I said, I'm going to read the whole thing through. I figured one parak in the morning, one chapter in the morning, one chapter at night. 
I have been reading. I, I'm now doing only one because I've added different things to my uh, my daily order. But I've been reading a chapter of the Tanakh every day for the last twenty years, and it has been the backbone of what has brought me to this conversation. Mm-hmm. So I really want to emphasize to people that 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 moment of 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 will of of awakening, and then the sense of oh well, but it's only ten minutes, or it's only this. Don't listen to that other voice. You know, you, you know, God is exactly, <laughs> you know, the expression, give him an inch and they'll take, take a, a mile. mile. It's like, give God an inch. He's going to give you a mile. You Absolutely. know, it's like, it's like you can't believe the changes that can happen if you just hang on to the coattails of this incredible, incredible energy. And this, by the way, always reminds me, I, I sometimes just marvel at the sheer amount of Jewish knowledge. I was learning Talmud yeah. this morning. And it's just like, the, on the one hand, the didactic minutia to the grandeur of the amount and, 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 and the, the, the various kinds of Jewish knowledge. Absolutely. It's just, it, it's just really, it, it's a forever process. Um, and basically, let's uh, sign off this issue of Elo with, come on, folks, let's get on it. Let's become a better people. Commit to a little more. Commit to a little more. That's right. And it'll take you an amazing long way. All right, the Torah portion that we're at here, Spiritual Cafe, Beit Mijar Sulam Yaakov, Yishai Fleischer Show on the Land of Israel Network, landofisrael.com, is chapter Deuteronomy chapter uh, 16, famous Shoftim, Shoftim. And this is one of these Torah portions. Chuck, remember, we are now in the 30-day session of Moses telling over the, uh, uh, the his, his version of... Uh, uh, of of historical events and, <laughs> right, and his take on everything and including many, many new laws that had not been mentioned previously in the Torah and including ones that had been mentioned previously in the Torah. And uh, th- the, this uh, Torah portion is, um, is basically one of those... Uh, there's no narrative in this week's Torah portion. It is, all, it is all law. Law, 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 various laws and huge tomes are written about, about many of the just, just sentences here. But the... the um, there are a few sentences here that are not just law, but kind of philosophical. One of them is right here in the beginning, which is uh, a phrase that I know well because it was actually uh, the byline, not the byline, what's it called? The, 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 sec- the, the title and the kind of second... Subtitle? Subtitle of, of well, not exactly, but subtitle of uh, the motto of my law school, which was Tzedek, Tzedek Tirdof. Uh, justice, justice, you should... Pursue, not peruse, by the way. You can get confused with those <laughs> things. Justice, sometimes the spell checkers will try to trick you. Justice, justice, shall you pursue? And this part, the Yeshiva University Law School uh, uh, failed to mention, mm-hmm. tichye, so that you should live, and you shall inherit the land, which Hashem your God gives you. By the way, uh, just a moment about Cardoza Law School, just for a second. I just realized the other day, if there should be any place in the world that's defending Israel against BDS, shouldn't it be at Cardoza Law? But Cardoza Law is busy defending, you know, American um, folks on death row, which is a very noble thing, trying to get them out, and, uh, and that's very interesting. But also a lot about, about, uh, about gay rights and all that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself, for God's sakes, of any, of any place in America that should have a center for the defense of, of Israel and international law, shouldn't it be Yeshiva University? Missed opportunity. Anyway, end parentheses. Here's this incredible general statement, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. Justice, justice shall you pursue. But Rabbi Mike Foyer. Yes. 
Isn't God the ultimate arbiter of justice? Can we really affect our justice in this world? Shouldn't we, in a sense, let, let live and let live and let the ultimate judge of judges be the one who knows all secrets and he should arbitrate what truth and not truth is and we should be hands-off laissez-faire? Well, I mean, one answer is, yes, God is, of course, the ultimate source of justice. But to the second half, we say, and therefore, shouldn't we just give up on it since we can't be that? The, the apostle, the verse itself answered you, which is tirdof, you're pursuing, right? Don't confuse your obligation to pursue with the idea that you will achieve. That's what the world is hung up on as far as I can tell, is that you know, coming out of the m- modern era and the sort of age of reason, so to speak, the post-enlightenment right, notion that we could actually know everything and that we could get it right and things would be perfect, right? where the world, the idea of natural law, right, that there was a, a, a perfect law which would be available to humanity, not based on revelation. Right? That was the pre-modern notion. So the post-modern notion is where you're coming from, which is like, well, that was all a bunch of hooey. Even if I'm willing to conceive of the idea of some abstract justice, it's unavailable, therefore, I'm going to make a lot of money and uh, go home and sleep well at night. And the Taurus not willing to let because, us off that hook. Uh, th- th- there's another, just, just, for, just print that, just before you answer that, like, also, there's a lot of injustice. You just look at the news and you're like, wow, I don't know if I can ever... That's a different problem. Get, get on top of that. Well, that's a different problem, which is just the scale of the injustice. But I'm speaking first theoretically, because the two go together. Right? And, and, and first of all, so the Torah says, pursue. It's not for you to finish this task, but but you are not free to desist. And this is, a, once again, one of the most beautiful formulations of the Torah's commitment to the absolute within subjective existence. There is an absolute here. It's called justice. Will you ever reach it? No. How do I know that? Because it says, Tirdof, you're in pursuit. Mm-hmm. Right, but as long as you're in pursuit, that's what God wants from us. Mm-hmm. The, but the real question here is, what aesthetic? What is this justice? You know, and there we're not going to, you know, open up a whole, so- you know, whole societies have risen and fallen without really getting to the bottom of that. But one thing I would add is one of the most beautiful um, statements the Torah offers elsewhere is not so long from now, actually, in the Book of Zorim, is hin tzedek the eifa tzedek yelecha, right? You should have just weights and measures. Just weights and measures. Yeah, which is w- a strange w- thing. Well, l- let's just explain on the technical level what we're talking about. Uh, and if you want to see it in the uh, the cartoon version of Joseph, uh, I forgot the I've got the other line of it. It's like King of Dreams or something like that. Right. The the the, the next movie after uh, Prince of Egypt. So so there, Joseph is. Um, his master is buying, let's say, it was Potiphar is buying a horse, and then he sees that the guy who's selling him the horse has a has one of these classic weights, right? A balance, a balance, and it is imbalanced, right? And 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 what used to be tricks is that people didn't, you know, you didn't have an easy way to have standards, and you could add a few microns of weight, and therefore be able to charge more because the way that you measured money a lot of times was just in weight. And by the way, this is not just uh, the ancient world. If you look today, anyone who's in America today, next time you go to a gas station, notice on the pump will be a sticker somewhere either on or near that that pump has been certified by a public official whose responsibility is to maintain the integrity of, st- of standards and measures. Absolutely. You know, you're totally right. And, and if uh, what about just buying something in weight? Everywhere. We buy all the time in weight. Everywhere. Here, there right is next door. Actually, the, the, the a shook. public official 
right. who's responsible. Why is that so critical? It's because the reality is now who's gonna know? You added just a you just you just changed the scale a little and, bit. And that's exactly the problem. Who's gonna know? If you start with arguments and, and complex your opinion, my opinion, we could get to the bottom of it. And the subjectivity of between your experience and my experience might just allow us to make a compromise. But when I say that will be $2 for one pound, it's an absolute statement. And if you mess with that, there's no way to fix it. And that's why the Torah says you must have just weights and measures. Tzedek is a standard by which you can do judgment. Judgment will always be subjective because it is local. It's parochial. This guy did this, that guy did that. Why did he do it? Where did he come from? What were the circumstances? Oh, fine. Ah, but it's wrong to murder. Right. That's a standard, right? So the problem with that is that standard is so easily blurred. So easily. And we are in pursuit of that standard at all times. And that's why the Torah is not just talking about what I was saying is that you'll never actually get there, et cetera. The other thing is, is that, well, but, well but God gave us standards. It's not only easily blurred. There are whole philosophies today that argue they don't exist. Right. That want to do away with those things. In fact, there is no, how can you have just weights and measures? It's all subjective. You know, it, that, that's two pounds for me. I don't know why. No, no, but that's the beauty of why the Torah plants that statement here. Because it's the one thing which we have not yet managed to corrupt. Right. Right? Physics. <laughs> don't mess with it. But notice how the Torah, right. well before such a notion existed, knew to root our understanding of what the word tzedek means mm-hmm. in something which was incontrovertible and, by the way, on which society rests. Because the definition of civilization in most places is contract law. Right? If I make an agreement with you and there is no overarching system that enforces your word and my word, the most basic agreement is that costs $2 for a pound. I give you $2, they're real. You give me a pound, that's real. Right. Right? If that level of agreement doesn't exist we would call that place uncivilized that's right right and and this is why the torah roots this standard here because of course even though i said we are pursuing this unattainable notion but god gave us the torah so it's not entirely unattainable we have a standard in our hands but maybe rabbi mike maybe there used to be a standard there was a time where there were great leaders and judges but today maybe there are not great leaders and judges and torah goes out to tell us that if you have a problem you're going to come to the priests and the Levites and the judges that will be in your days, in those days, in the future. And uh, they're going to tell you from that place, the chosen place, they're going to tell you the law. And then it says, right? You, uh, the famous, uh, do as, as they told you everything that they directed you. According to this Torah, they shall make judgments in their time, even in a time of post-modernity. They're going to be judges. Uh, and there's something very super um, uh, hopeful that there will be judges in those days. And once again, by the way, you'll notice the connection that you pointed out in the previous verse. right? Pursue justice in order to inherit the land. Here, there's a very important connection that's made. Where does this court sit? in the vision of the Torah, right? It's hamakom hahu asher yivchar Hashem, that place which God will choose, which later in the story of the Bible is revealed as Jerusalem. Meaning there are plenty of people, leaders today, who will want to tell you what's right and wrong. And one of the great challenges as a halachic Jew, as a person who strives to live their life by 
by the Torah's law that I face today is that I often don't know who to listen to. There are people whose wisdom I recognize, whose leadership I sense, and yet they often will say contradicting things, and it can be very difficult, even on a very basic, functional level, to know what do I do. And and it's part of the brokenness of the whole halachic system is that we, we lack that central voice, which is sitting not just in a place of authority in a hierarchical sense, but in an existential sense. You want to know who's holding the center? Look toward where the center is. Which way do you turn to pray? What about separation of church and state? Well, first of all, that concept is a uh, Enlightenment European concept, which doesn't exist in the Torah. Right. I mean, there is it actually no doesn't exist in the Constitution either. No, not the in the Constitution says not to establish. Right. The, the difference. The way we can get into yeah. the establishment clause, freedom of, freedom from. Let's not go there right now. <laughs> right. Um. But but also, there there's a, I think a deeper truth here, which is that there's only one relationship with God. There is no, the underlying assumption of church and state division is that there's something called civil and something called ecclesiastic law, right? Religious and civil law. There is no such thing in the Torah, right? Everything is, a, is an articulation of our relationship with God. How I do business, how I pray, how I have my most intimate relationships. It's all one. And yet, just to finish the thought, the, it only really works when we are people living in integrity as a, as a whole nation, with our land, with the temple at the center, which is why that that vision is not just some sort of thin nationalist vision of like want to shake off the yoke of the nations. It's a redemptive vision of how you plant a center to the world in order that we know how to pursue the justice that we desire. So the judges are going to be sitting in Jerusalem. On Let's the go, Temple Mount. On the Temple Mount, there is a, a room, a... a um, Court of hewn stones. (laughs) Right, where the Sanhedrin, which, by the way, is a Greek word, uh, sits. uh, 71 members of the high, of the en banc high court, the full court. Um, And they sit on the Temple Mount, right next to where the priests are going to do priestly duty. Close by is the king. Yes. And a minute ago, you said, on the one hand, there is no quote unquote separation of church and state but there is a certain division of powers oh absolutely and and this week's torah portion actually lays out the one two three maybe four three or four power bases depends on how you count which ones do you see okay so we have we have the judges yes we have the priests Mm -hmm. we have the king and we have the prophet okay I mean, I, 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 the reason I said three or four is because sometimes judges and priests, the Torah seems to... Judges, priests, and prophets can mingle. Right. The king is the only one who stands aside. I want to call the show Judges, Priests, and Prophets. There I you like go. Okay. I mean, they can mingle, and uh, there is a very powerful expression to the re- reality of the division that you spoke of, is that the king has what we would call extrajudicial powers. Right, the Torah is very clear. For instance, the best example is Wait, in the so death. This memory. week's Torah portion is going to talk about the king. Yes, it's going to it's going to lay out the framework of the king as well. We've already laid out the judges. We haven't yet talked about prophets. We're going to talk about that, mm-hmm. but we're also going to lay out this thing called the king. All of the models of leadership that the Torah conceives are here in this week's portion, which is one of the, one of the reasons it's so important to read it closely. Mm-hmm. In a time where we're not only struggling to find leaders as individuals, but we actually need to be reconsidering the whole political social structure within which we live here the torah is offering us multiple visions and it's very important what you pointed out which is that they are multi 
There are different facets. There are different capacities. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I was going to point out is that you know, in many places, the Torah conceives of the death penalty. Many, many places. right? And that death penalty is handed over into the hands of the court, the sages, sometimes also the priests together. They serve as court judges. right? But through time, the sages, particularly in the Mishnah and the Gemara, legislated the death penalty into the corner. Right? They required there to be two non-related male witnesses who gave a warning before the person did what it was they were done and the person had to register the warning, accept the consequences, and essentially legislated the death penalty out of existence because of their commitment to truth. Because they realize, as the American legal system struggles with today, they realize that, that human beings are responsible for adjudication. And there will always be room for human fallibility to then enter into what is an irreversible process of execution. So they effectively legislated the death penalty out of existence. But you know what they did? They enhanced the extrajudicial powers of the king and the court. I mean, you can't execute according to the Torah, but there's a problem then. What about all the murderers and evil people that will run free? They said, don't worry. We're going to exercise that power in the name of the social fabric. And so you see a tremendous distinction between their commitment to absolute truth, which should be rooted in the court and the purity of its commitment to the Torah, and their commitment to a stable society, which is really embodied in the king, and when the king doesn't exist, the court is responsible for taking that responsibility on itself for, I mean, extrajudicial in in English sounds sort of illegal, but that's not what it was. It is essentially a parallel legal structure. So... So we, we are going to take a little break right now. Uh, we're going to get back to the issue of a king. I want to hear about why we should have a Jewish king. And the question is of, of like, are we really yearning for a king? Like, do I want a king now? I don't know what that really means in a modern uh, democracy or, or let's call it a, um, uh, an ethnic democracy. What do I call it? Like a... Like, um, Ethnic nation state. Ethnic nation state with, with a modified democracy. That's what I call it, modified democracy. Let me read to you just a few listener emails that have come in recently to Yishai at thelandofisrael.com and subject line, I am a listener, or I'm a listener, or I am a listener. That is in your discretion. Exclamation point or not, a lot of times people use exclamation point. Here's from Josh, I'm a listener. He writes, Yishai, Shabbat Shalom from Northern California and wine country. Sadly, very few kosher wines are made here. Don't worry, Josh. We're making enough here in the land of Israel. He says, I've been listening to you since your Galei Israel days, at least five years, I think, and cannot believe to tell you, how, uh, cannot begin to tell you how much I enjoy listening to your shows and learning from both you and Rabbi Mike. I was especially here to thrill your discussion on Parshat Vedchanan two weeks ago, as it was my bar mitzvah portion so many years ago. Wonderfully and memorably for me, my father was inspired and financially able uh, to make that ceremony occur at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Attached are two pictures of two Israeli flags that hang in my home. The first is in my garage right in front of the weight rack where I work out four to five times a week. Keep it up. Uh, the other is just before the entrance to my bedroom. While I am not currently able to make Aliyah, I am raising my two sons with as much Judaism in their lives as I am able. To to you and Rabbi Mike for all the wonderful Torah you bring to the world. Please keep broadcasting and bringing real, the real story of our people's return to our ancestral homeland and never stop inspiring all those yearning to come home to the land. Sincerely, Josh. Amen. And I think, I think what, what Josh is also talking about, and what, what I love about Josh's email is that Josh says to you, I am unable to make Aliyah right now, but don't stop talking about it. 
don't let the philosophy wrap around the reality, the opposite. Let the philosophy change reality. Let it draw people. Keep inspiring people. Don't let it be like, well, American Jews are never coming, so no problem. Just fund our story here and we're, you know, and be good we'll ambassadors. We'll talk about something us. else. Right. Yeah. You know, no, talk about it. We're coming home. We're in a great time. And, and I, I want to tell you, I wish we had a, a new contract with our American, North American Jewish brothers and sisters, and actually Jews everywhere. It's a simple contract, which is, I get it, you may not be coming. I get it. But let us agree that we're all focused on building the Jewish state because it is the most exciting project of our people in 2,000 years. This is the great project. You can't live here? No problem. Buy a piece of real estate. Um, you know, drink wine every Friday night. Help other people. Send money. Send other people. Send the young people. Speak in your shul. There's a million things to do. But let's make an agreement that we both, that we all understand that we're building the Jewish state together because this is the thing to do. Even if you personally can't do it, this is the thing that we're doing in our time and we've got to do it together. And what's our side of the contract from this side of the ocean? That we're going to do it, that we're going to build it, that we're not going to give it up. I had actually a, a much uglier version of this contract beforehand, which is we won't tell you to make Aliyah, you don't tell us to give up our land. How about that, Okay. That was I, a yeah. I yeah. think I, I'm I'm wary of that because yeah, that's you know, ugly. In, not only is that ugly, but even the uh, kinder version, which kind of amounts to the same thing, I, I can tell you from my experience um, of my students at Pardes, who very much come from a world where they no longer see themselves in exile. They don't even. They're not in exile. They're in diaspora. They're, they don't even relate to the notion of diaspora necessarily, right. because diaspora implies that there's a center and a periphery. Right. Right. A, what we need to do in order to re-engage uh, these Jews is give them a sense of the mission here. Meaning like what underlay the excitement in what you said is your deep clarity. You didn't even have to express it. Just the deep clarity. You did say that the, this is the most exciting project. right? We need to re-engage the, the potential of that project. It's the bigness I feel, which is lacking from people's vision. right? right? Things have fallen into this square meter Th- that where the border lies, this issue of civil rights, not that those things aren't important, but the, the picture that in- inspired two or three generations of a rebirth of a people, of, of a messianic passion for fixing the world, that energy has been diverted into other realms. Can I tell you who I think was a big hero in creating that, that giant inspiration? Who's that? It was Hitler, okay? Hitler was so, his, his efforts were so grand and his and his and his thinking was so big and so hideous. Realize someone's going to quote you as calling right. Hitler well, a hero. Well, you know, we all at, right after Hitler, we had to be reborn. We had to we had to, we had to build. We we had to we had to procreate. We we had, we had to raise a generation. We had, we had to be strong. And, and it was a giant moment of creativity that had to happen. Right now, in this in this kind of even keeled bourgeois moment, it's like. The dreams we're become... playing it small. Right, we're playing it small, exactly. It's because the genius which underlay his madness was the understanding that in order to rule the world, you have to get rid of the Jews. Right. Remember, he wanted to rule the world. And militarily, of course, we were insignificant. Not like today, thank God. Right? Even culturally, one could argue, okay, like, you know, European culture has a lot of Jew in it, but... No, but he understood existentially that in order to rule the world, you had to get rid of the people who know who the real king is. Right. 
And and that's what I feel needs to be awoken is that here in this time, both in our generation and in this month, we need to wake up the passion of our brothers and sisters, both here in Israel and abroad, about our service of the king. So here's another email uh, from Lori. She says, Shalom Yishai, my husband and I are finishing up our Orthodox conversion across the ocean in Charlotte, North Carolina. Amazing. Unc- incredible. Amazing, Lori. Welcome to the peoplehood and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Uh, I appreciate your discussion of the false prophets from this week's Parsha. We are former Christians and appreciate when a Jew with a mixed audience can stand firmly for the Torah and be uncompromising and unambiguous about the Jewish relationship with other religions. Believe me. Believe me, folks. Believe me, right? I know from experience on the other side that if you're in the, in, in the least, quote-unquote, open to their interpretation or beliefs, they often see it as a sign that you can be evangelized and converted. So thank you for being clear about where you stand. I enjoy your discussions with Rabbi Mike. The Torah and organic Jewish lifestyle which you present are excellent companion to my studies in my journey to discover my true self. Shabbat Shalom, Lori. God bless. It what an email! Smooth. Should be a I smooth wanna, transition. I want to. I, if I if it was not if it was not illegal by the Torah to, to get a tattoo, I would tattoo this on my forehead. <laughs> this is this is the best email. Okay, and and you know I always say that that there's an, there's two kinds of there's two kinds of ingathering of the exiles. One ingathering is when a Jewish person is like, hey, looks like Israel's reborn. I'm Jewish. Torah says to go back to the land. Let's go. Which is by the way. The simple and correct formulation of it all. Okay? Come home, people. Come yeah, home. That's simple. But there's another thing when Hashem puts a Jewish soul inside a Gentile body and this person goes through what they go through, like Lori and her husband, and, and uh, come back to the fold. That is the real ingathering of the exiles. And I'm not just saying that. The Talmud says that one of, one of the reasons why the Jewish people went into exile is to bring back converts who, whose souls have been placed, lost, Uh, in other bodies. And Lori, I want to tell you that I have a lot of experience with the Christian world. I have a lot of respect and love for the Christian world. I have learned some good characteristics and some even things about the Bible in certain ways uh, from the Christian world. Absolutely. I've learned from my Christian friends all kinds of inter uh, knowledge and and, and, and interpersonal correct behavior and and even... even, uh, good emotional stances, you know, towards simplicity towards the Lord, uh, which we'll talk about in today's Torah portion uh, later on. Uh, but when it comes to uh, Uncle Jay, and when it comes to uh, the Christian texts, I absolutely and firmly believe that you have to speak firmly and honestly. And a lot of uh, good, uh, a lot of folks will drop off from being your friend when you speak with such clarity. And the ones that are left, you've pruned the field, and the best trees remain. Really, uh, the people who are willing to, uh, to uh, being honest with people and clear is the best way possible. And just you don't get in trouble. You don't get in trouble with your fellow Jews who will accuse you of this, that, or the other. And you and you don't get in trouble with 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 folks who get the wrong impression that they could somehow convert you or bring you closer. Hashem has endowed us with being the teachers of Torah to the Jewish people, certainly, and to the world. The Torah was, even this, this book of Deuteronomy was told in 70 languages so that all the nations could hear it. And, um, and I find that, that speaking with, 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 with clarity and without succumbing doesn't win me always a lot of friends, but, but it wins me great friends, the ones that do. 
And so that's that's what I want to say. And and uh, maybe maybe in a similar vein, uh, a guy named John writes to me and he says, "I'm a listener from Alexandria, Virginia, a conservative Christian and a strong supporter of Israel. I'm convinced the temple must be and will be rebuilt. Though I wonder why priests don't begin now with a second tabernacle." I was troubled by the recent podcast about Christians being welcome in Israel. I certainly didn't feel welcomed as I listened, but as I reflected on centuries of oppression by so-called Christians leading up to and including modern times, even such recent abhorrent practices as world vision, working against Jewish communities in the Shamron, I can understand and accept your position even though I don't much like it. I believe there could come a day when true Christians the world over may have to emigrate to Israel, First, in self-preservation, and not longer, and not long after, in the defense of Israel. Yes, I'm apocalyptic in my worldview. Sorry, I look forward to the day when Christians are welcomed as the younger brothers of Jews. What do you think about that? I appreciate the honesty. I appreciate it. It's very important. I think that he put his finger on something I personally struggle with, which is it's very hard to deal in the present with so much of a burden of the past. And I do also look forward to the day when we as a people can feel a sense of health, wholeness, and, um, and real revelation in order to be able to look eye to eye with uh, the Christian world and the Muslim as well. At the end of the day, uh, this show is in English and it's going out to the world because you know what? We're living in a time where the Torah wants to be broadcast out. And there are many people throughout the world that want to hear it, want to come closer to the truest way of understanding God's word. And the Torah is written in Hebrew. It's written about our people. It's emanating from Jerusalem. And, and, and God wants you to hear it. He wants the, the world to hear it. Jews, Gentiles, whatever you are, whatever, however you self-understand yourself, God wants you to hear his word and connect him. All right, let me just, uh, just two more pieces of housework. First thing, today's show is sponsored uh, by uh, another Mike. That's right, another uh, Mike. He's not a rabbi per se, but he's in a sense another rabbi of mine. His name is Rabbi Mike Ber- his name He's not a rabbi, but he is like a rabbi to me because I've learned so much from him, and he's Mike Berezin, and uh, he is my trainer. And I highly recommend that when you're in Jerusalem, even if you're coming on a two-week vacation uh, and you need a little tune-up, fix-me-up, uh, check out JerusalemFitness.com, I think, JerusalemFitness.com, and uh, let him know that, that Ishai sent you. He'll give you a good deal. And uh, you know what? Health is so important, Rabbi Mike. Am I right? You are absolutely Working right. out is right. And working out also, by the way, speaking of, remember we talked about anger in the beginning? One of the ways is to work on your character. Another way is to run your butt off, okay? Right. And you work out hard. Some, some what do you call it? Some, uh, some sweat-making, vigorous exercise. You'll get rid of a lot of that anger. That's You'll why get rid the more tired I am, the better parent I am, because I just don't have the energy to care about all that <laughs> stupid stuff that used to make me angry. So, so basically, a parenting through... Exhaustion. Yes, Very right. good. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Mike, for that. So check out Jerusalem Fitness. Uh, and also check out, uh, if you also need to get physically strong in terms of your defense of the Jewish people, your ability to defend yourself, your family, and your values, check out Capone Defense. That's right, Capone Defense. And Avi Capone is a world-class uh, shooter, trainer, everything you need to know about Israeli-style defense. Check him out. Let him know Yishai sent you. And when you're in Israel, come shooting with him. I promise you, uh, you will you will um, feel more empowered than you've ever felt before. I want to thank the good folks, uh, my good friends in Switzerland, the Michel family, for helping support the show. I want to thank Cynthia in Northern California. I want to thank um, uh, my good friends out in Brooklyn. My good friends Jack, Lillian, and Sarah. 
Um, and they support the show in honor of each other. And, of course, Moshe, young Moshe. He's an awesome part of the component. Oh, speaking of Moshe, I also want to thank uh, my man Moshe in Idaho and uh, Ben Bresky and Tabitha, all part of the Yishai Fleischer team, the LandofIsrael.com team, to get the show out to you. It's got to go out through even more channels, folks. It's got to go out through even more channels. I want to get on Stitcher, Spotify. Tell me if you're on these things, if that's important for you, the Google Play Music Store. Um, Moshe puts it up on our show on whyutora.com or .org. It's got to go out even further. Mike, we got to broadcast even more and stronger and better. Speaking to the world. We got to do it. We got to do it. It's very, very important. So thank you for that. Um, Who else? Oh, Fred. I want to thank Fred in New Jersey for supporting the show as well. It makes all the difference. Please check out yishaifleischer.com. In fact, there's going to be a new yishaifleischer.com coming out soon. There's also going to be a new article in Alga Minor called Good News for Liberal Jews. Watch out for that. I just wrote a new article. Big one, like 2,000 words. Good news for liberal Jews. Why liberal Jews shouldn't drop off of uh, uh, caring and loving Israel. Uh, why, why Israel is a, is a liberal country in so many ways. But of course, two-state is a failed liberal project. Let's drop that and move ahead. Okay, uh, so that's all the housework that, that we have. I'm sure there's more things. Landofisrael.com. Check it out. Uh, Thelandofisrael.com. Now, Rabbi Mike Foyer, Spiritual Cafe on the Yishai Fleischer Show from Jerusalem. Now it's time to talk about kings. It's time to talk about a king. That's a big thing. We're always talking about kings, King David. Uh, you know, right now I'm barely dealing with my, like, government. You know what I mean? And he, By the way, interestingly enough, here in Israel, oftentimes, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, the prime minister is called the king. Certainly... Our Prime Minister right now, Benjamin Netanyahu, is in many ways considered and, and has certain qualities of kingship uh, vis-a-vis the Jewish people today. Okay, I see you're raising your eyes. Uh, another example is Herzl. Herzl, a lot of people said he was like a prophet or a king. He seemed to have this uh, charisma and the stature that was like, had been lacking the Jewish people. The Jewish people were very, very ragged. And people like Netanyahu on the world stage or like Herzl in his time, certainly other you know, great, great people like the Baal Shem Tov and others had a kingly attitude. But what does it mean to strive to have a Jewish king? Is that what we really want today? Uh, it's absolutely what we really want. You want a Jewish king? The question is what does the word melech mean? Because you know, one of the things that I do when I'm teaching, it's one of my favorite uh, games to play, so to speak, although it's an important educational tool, is called disambiguation. Disambiguation. Right, you ever use Wikipedia? Sure, they disambiguate between the, similar the s- things. Well, the same word with multiple meanings. Right. And that's the key, is that when I say the word king... Like, like, like you could say beetle, and it could be like beetle the car, Or it could be like bug. Paul McCartney, right? right? Or beetle, but that's spelled differently. But uh, uh, I know, but you got my <laughs> point. Um, the, the challenge here, especially for people who read the Bible in English, is the word king conjures up a very specific set of ideas and images. Right. Most for most people, English speakers, you're really thinking of European, late European divine right monarchy. Right. I'm right. Definitely thinking about that. I'm, I might think about King Arthur. I right. Know. Okay. So a little bit earlier, but guy with a funny hat and the sword and the in the chariot, uh, not the chariot. Sorry, the horse. Right. Knights in armor. Right. I mean, the, but the chair, definitely, certainly the throne. Sure. Sure. The throne, very big. Um, and the reality is, and, and now is not the time to do it. I just want to raise the question. We have to before I can answer really the question. Do you want a king? And really, the, the real question here is not whether I want a king or not, but is there a commandment that there be a king? It's a different order question. Right. Because there's a commandment 
that there be a king, then whether I want the king or not is already a secondary question. Right. Right. Um, does the Torah conceive of kingship as an essential element of what it is to be a people in our land? Right. And the question that needs to be clarified is what is malchut, not what is kingship. Right, because malchut, which of course you would translate as kingship, but it's a concept which is rooted in the Torah, and therefore, before we start striving for something, we need to know what we're after. I raise this because you know, if you look at the Rishonim, right, the classic medieval authorities that that um, interpret the Bible, you will see that almost without exception, they agree that there is indeed a mitzvah. There's a commandment to appoint a king. Um, there's some diversity in terms of what that means. Right, but there's one noteworthy exception, and that's the Abarbanel. Right? Don Yitzka Abarbanel was the finance minister to the king of Spain who orchestrated the expulsions of the Jews in the end of the 15th century. He went from Spain to Portugal, where he became the finance advisor to the king of Portugal before the Jews were then expelled from there less than a year later. And he finally found refuge in Italy in the city-states of Italy. And interspersed in his commentary, you can find his assertion that there cannot be a commandment that the Jewish people appoint a king. He says, I know kings. Mm. I've been close to kings my whole life, Mm. and they're rotten. He gets (laughs) to the city-states of Italy, and he's fascinated by the idea of a government, which in many ways had absolute powers. The city-states then were oligarchical, but they had sort of monarchical power, right? But what was the key? They were answerable to the people that would come after them. Their whole government structure was premised on the idea that one day you're not going to be the oligarch anymore. You're just going to be another business guy in the street. And if you mess up, whoever comes after you is going to hold you accountable. So he says that the idea of malchut, of kingship, is not necessarily limited to the notion of a king. There's a lot that needs to be fleshed out there. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, uh, I, I was thinking also Maimonides also served the, the great sultan. Uh, the vizier. Yeah, he was the physician to the vizier. Wasn't he also the physician to Salah ad-Din? No, he was to the viziers, I believe. Well, no, but Lacha, but he, he, he certainly was, was very close to absolute to, power. To power, that's right, to power. Yeah, listen, and, and I just feel called to give you my personal definition. When, when you speak, there's a big question halakhically in Jewish law. Does the government of the state of Israel have the status of malchut? Which, by the way, notice just by asking the question indicates that the, the, the leading minds of the rabbinic world know that Malchut is, is well beyond some guy with a funny hat and a big chair. Right. Right? And it, it, the answer is complex. I'm going to get into it. But I'm going to offer this based in, um, in the Kabbalah, in the Pnimuta Torah, in the, in the inner teachings. The mystical Torah. The mystical Torah. That the definition of Malchut is the ability to hold the context that allows the pieces to come to right relationship, right? Because you know what the problem with having a Jewish king is? Who's the king of the Jewish people? The, the God of Israel. That's right. So in Hashem, order, in order to be a king, H. you have to either be nobody or a usurper. Right. And that's why when you read the book of Kings, right, and even from the book of Samuel onwards, you see this tremendous tension. David, the boy king, he dances. His great moment is dancing before the ark of the Lord. And his wife looks out the window and says, Oh my gosh, you're embarrassing yourself. You're acting like one of the lowly servants. And he says, I will lower myself even further before the Lord. And mm-hmm. that is what makes him great. That's right. Every king that decides that they are the power, it becomes a usurper and eventually leads to destruction. Right. And, and that's why the ability to hold space, to allow the pieces to come to right relationship is true kingship. A king has 
nothing of his own, even though, of course, everything is his. A king um, has to fight for, for national independence uh, against folks who want to take that away. He's got to clear the land uh, of idolatry. Um, but for the sake of God, for not the sake for of his God, own personal interest. Of, he's got to establish a temple for God. Um, he's got to fight the Amalekites, yeah. which are the anti-God energy in this world. Uh, he, he has to clear the way for God. And, but you also said something in there, which is like he, 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 he mollifies the Jews. He, he somehow, in a sense, subdues them a little bit, brings them in line. But he holds the space. Meaning, right. I mean, think about in the, the stories of the Bible is an amazing thing. You get this image, the classics, right, of, of um, people that are coming to petition for the king. Commoners, nobles, right? The lady from Tekoa, I'm sure you know the stories. It's like, wait, but he's a king. Why is he dealing with all this nonsense? Let these people go to the judges. No, because he is the context for their lives, and he cares. He cares about the people, and therefore, sometimes caring comes through asserting force and holding boundaries. Sometimes care comes through making space and being sort of like um, self-abnegating. But the key is in service of the Torah. As the commandment here says, what's the first thing the king is meant to do as soon as he sits on his throne? Write down this Torah. He's got to write down a Torah, and he's got to carry this Torah with him all the time. He's got to have his own Torah, and this thing has got to be like at his bosom day in, day out, all the time. Yeah, according to the sages, he wrote it like a small version. He would bind it on his arm. Right. It's, it's got to be like a travel Torah. This thing is with you all the time. Lest his heart be lifted up, because the right. Torah fully understands that power corrupts. And it also limits him. Right from the get-go, it's all about limitations. Not too many so- uh, so- uh, horses, not too many wives. Uh, and and absolutely, he's got to be, in a sense, a leading example, a leading example for the rest of the Jewish people. So a Jewish king is a big question. Of course, we do believe uh, fully that um, there will be a descendant of King David who will be Mashiach, who will be Messiah. Just last note, I would point out in our prayers, when we pray for David, we pray for the throne of David. But God is the only one who's called king. And that's a very important distinction mm-hmm. because that mm-hmm. throne will give us the rallying point for God's kingship in the world. Uh, uh, we pray for the throne of David. We also pray for the um, uh, plant of David, the root of David, the, the, this, this kind of it, the, the imagery is one of a plant. Tzemach David. Tzemach David. Tzemach David. Uh, we're going to get to that in, in one. In, you know what? Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to skip forward and skip over something I wanted to talk about. Just if we're already talking about plants. Let's just talk about uh, another plant, and that is this. Incre- there's there's two more phrases that I want to talk about in this week's Torah portion. One of them is all about um, a Jewish war against a city who's rebelling against Israel. You got to destroy it, and it goes all about how how you have to set about, and you got to make uh, demands on them. Either they succumb and pay tax, or they flee, or they make war and get destroyed. But in the midst of this discussion, there's going to be a talk about uh, the fruit trees around the town. You're, you're, in, the, you're, in, you're in earth, uh, either in the land of Israel or in, in its proximity, and, and you're making war, and you need wood. You know, you need wood for fire, you need wood for, for Siege maybe... Siege engines. Right, whatever, for uh, um, uh, tools of war, whatever you need wood for. It says, listen... If you see like oak trees or, or trees that are non-fruit bearing, you could use those. But do not cut down the fruit bearing trees. That's a Jewish law. And then it goes on to say, uh, because 
the man, the human being, is like the field, the tree in the field. It's a, it's a very strange uh, language, exactly how it's written, and there's a lot of discussion about what exactly it means. Well, you read it in a very specific intonation. I read it in a specific way, speci- because to, just to make it sense of it in English. But basically, don't cut down the fruit tree, because the fruit tree is like the man, or the man is like the fruit of the, of, is like the tree of the field. And uh, there's, something, uh, there's something very technical about that, the value of the fruit tree or the value of man, but there's also something very deep and meaningful about being, um, thinking of yourself like a tree. You've got to root yourself deeply in the ground, and also you're expected to be a fruitful tree. You cannot just be uh, a non-fruit-bearing tree. You're asked of God in this week's Torah portion in a hidden fashion to, to get out there and bear some fruit. Make something, as, as, as uh, my good, our good friend Muttle Wolf says, put a dent in the world, you know? That's <laughs> what, that, kick a dent in the world, he says. Uh, like, like, make a, like, do something. Have children. Raise them upright. Fix this world. Make, make a corner better. Beautify it. And don't cut down the fruit-bearing trees in this world. You talked about that last week. By the way, uh, Dan Mastery, a good friend of mine from Florida, was... was uh, what he, he wrote an email ripping you a little bit on... Uh, on um, he, he has a problem uh, with, with certain... He's a house builder. He, mm-hmm. has a, he has a hard time with certain environmentalists' language and stuff like that. And yet, and yet I think he knows, we all know, that it's, that it's desperately true also. We have to protect this world. We've got to build and be creative, but at the same time, let not, not let the nature be destroyed. Well, that's the other way to read this verse, which I actually truthfully think is pshat. It's the plain meaning. It's a question. Right? You're at war. Okay. The, the Torah assumes just war. It's important to note that. Right? We are not a pacifist people. Right? Um, there is such a thing as just war. But even in a just war, what, you're going to cut down this tree? It's not a person that can go run and hide from you and take shelter in the siege. Mm-hmm. Right? Therefore, you have a responsibility to this tree, which actually supersedes the goals of your war, right? Because in the same way, your war is a local phenomenon, but this tree represents the divine intention, like you said, that there be life. Mm -hmm. That even war itself needs to be in the service of life. Don't let war be overly destructive. That's right. You gotta fight a bad guy, fight a bad guy. What does this tree ever do to you? And and I would say on the the sort of poetic or, or midrashic level, that even war, the ultimate act of death and destruction, must be in the service of life. Therefore, there is this symbolic obligation that when you are waging war, which remember the, war, the Torah also conceives of total war, well before Clausewitz got the idea, right? That God says, these seven nations, destroy them completely, but don't cut down these trees. That's not because the tree is more valuable than human life. It's because th- that it's a war in service of life, and therefore you do not needlessly throw away the productive side of the world. Excellent. I love it. Very good. I really like that very much. And, and, and I think in our lives, like, sometimes you get in the fight, like, take it easy. Look at the big picture. You know? Yep. Don't get too stirred up about something. Like, remember the, you know, don't get too upset about Yesterday, a good buddy of mine called, and his wife <laughs> had erased a uh, SD card of his. And he's, uh, he works in, in, in fields dealing with SD cards and stuff, filming and, and photography. And his wife got upset with him. He uh, took the SD card. She's all, whatever. I don't want to say too much. The bottom line, he was miffed, okay? Mm-hmm. I said to him, I said to him, what was erased? And he told me, like, my daughter's seventh um, birthday party. I told, I told him, that's not a big deal at all. I thought it was a professional thing. Calm down. And maybe your daughter would have been embarrassed about that. But more than anything, what an opportunity 
this Elul's man, this period of Elul, to be like, I said to him, go out, buy your wife something, get, bring it home and say, here, baby, don't worry about it. Don't even, I'm not angry at all. Here's a gift. Be, be, like, like it, was, it was nothing. Like, let it slide out like water off a duck's back. Like, don't worry about that. That's, that's also like, don't let the war, something that you're upset about, you know, allow you to, which is, which is maybe not so important, allow you to destroy your human relations. Because what we want is a land flowering with fruit and trees. And if we have to fight a war to get it, well, that, that's what God wants. But don't lose sight of what we're after in pursuit of the uh, steps on the way. Okay, last one, okay? We've, we've gone already a little bit long, but still we, we cannot leave this to our portion. Shof team around chapters uh, 18, 17, 18, 19 uh, of the book of Deuteronomy. One of the um, deep moments of, of articles of, of, of character development. We talked about separations of powers. We talked about, you know, judges and, 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 and true weights. But we also have to talk about, and we started talking about, about with the tree, about characteristic traits. And here God says to us, he says, listen, the other nations that lived in this land, they constantly turned to all kinds of methods of sorcery and dark magic and other means to divine the future. They wanted to understand. I can understand them, Rabbi Mike. People want to know how to make decisions. Absolutely. They're yearning for some clue, for some direction. And they don't know the right decision. You don't know which fridge is going to break down. You don't know which wife is going to be you know, the right one for in, in later in life. You don't, you don't know which house to buy. You don't know which school to send your kids to. You don't know which town to live in. There's a million we can't questions. can't really know anything. Right, right. And it's frustrating. So people, and scary. Scary. And people in the past turn to all and kinds in of... in the present. And in the present turn to divinations. Is that, did I say that right? Divinations, divinations. Whatever. Tomato, so, tomato. So, so he says, get... You are not allowed to do that. You are coming to a land which God says, don't do like those um, abominations. And that's what God calls all those efforts to divine the future and to understand things through black magic. I hate all that stuff, says God. Do not talk to all kinds of bone uh, readers. Necromancers. Necromancers. Sorcerers. Witches. All kinds of stuff like that. When I said armpit talkers, that used to be a kind of, that was one of the ways in which, in which, People would have divination, whatever, divination, whatever. He says, all these things are, are, are disgusting to me. They are all abominations. This is one of the reasons why I kicked them out of the land. You've got to be the following phrase. Be simple. Be whole with Hashem, your God. In a sense, trust me. Go with me. Let me lead you. You won't know everything. Don't try to figure it all out. Don't talk to the dead. Follow my pathways. Follow this Torah. Go with me with simplicity. With simplicity. And, and sometimes people say to me in America, like, well, where do you get the mitzvah of uh, making Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael? Sometimes I want to tell them this also. Be simple. Don't be so complex. God, God says his abode is in Jerusalem. Go towards him. Yes. Walk towards him. Don't... don't don't think too much. And, and that image of, of going is extremely important because, of course, this verse is a direct echo of a much earlier statement in the Torah, which is very important. Because you gave what I think is the plain meaning here, which is God says, listen, everybody else is chasing after these, which is necromancers, etc. And here in the context, I'll give you a prophet. 
You know, meaning follow me. I'm one level, follow me, don't follow them. The problem with that is it's training. If I teach you, listen, here's the prophet. You ask him, you ask the prophet. So like one day the prophet's not around, but the guy down the street happens to be a necromancer, right? So what am I going to do? You've trained people to follow. So the original statement is, and who did God say that to? To, to Abraham. Abraham. You shall walk before me right. and be tamim. Abraham wasn't following God. God actually was following Abraham. Right? And that's the power of the covenant that underlies the Torah and our existence here today, which is that we are not just playing out some deterministic world where, where, where the necromancers tell you, oh, see that cat crossed your path? That's because the stars are in this configuration and it's all just happening and you just need to be in line with it. Your greatest hope is to be in line with what's already happening and your worst disaster is to be off the track. No, no, no. God gave over creation into our hands, and we are helping it to unfold before us. God says, yeah, Gavalt, Abraham, he's going where I want to go. And you know what the best part is? I'm not going to tell him where that is. Because where does God tell Abraham to go when he leaves his home and his father's house and his whole known world? To a land which I will show you. That's right. And he, and he never tells him where. Because what he wants from Abraham, what he wants from us, is to move forward in the world. He's given us plenty of instruction. We started with an important one, justice. Right? He's talking about love. We're talking about kingship and all these things. God says, no, you know what the world's going to look. True weights. But, but I'm not going to tell you how it's going to happen. Not to keep you in the dark, but actually to give the light into your hands. So there's one level you have to trust that God is going to take care of you. And the Navi is there when we're growing up, be it physically, emotionally, spiritually. We need to have that feeling that we're being taken care of. And the, the prophet is there to tell us God is with us. But really the goal, that's to be Abraham. And to go before God and to actually open up the space into which his light can grow. That, that is the essence of Judaism. Yes. That is the essence of Judaism. To really, to really be um, a minister of God, but to kind of go ahead of him and, and to make this world a place for him. Uh, not to be automatons in his service, but to actually be scouts uh Sayeret, as we say here in Hebrew. And creators. Right. Ourselves. Creators, builders, space makers, um, and really and really draw godliness into this world. Absolutely. We're asked to draw godliness into this world. Rabbi Mike Foyer, it's been an hour and ten minutes of pleasure to speak with you the words of Torah. I hope everybody takes the advice to to get in the swing of things for this Elul. Uh, we're still at the beginning. You can really get going right now. Speaking of getting going, I'm going tonight on an aeroplane. Uh, to be uh, safe and successful travels. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm excited. I'm going to be in uh, Phoenix. I'm going to be in uh, Los Angeles. And I'm going to be in San Diego. I'm excited to see San Diego. Never been there. Um, and if more excited than anything is to share the story of Israel, to share the strength of Israel, to share the light of the God of Israel. So I hope to connect to you. So uh, check us out uh, on what? SoundCloud. Um, are you on LinkedIn? On LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Actually. Yeah, LinkedIn. Uh, your new Facebook page. Rav Mike Foyer. Rav Mike Foyer, F-E-U-E-R. Uh, check out my Facebook page, Yishai Fleischer. Check out the Hebron's Facebook page, which is Hebron Official. And every day we post great stuff. Thanks to Ben Bresky, our good man, uh, helping us post uh, great things about Hebron daily. Um, and thelandofisrael.com. We need your donations. We need your support. Uh, it's a great network, the greatest network. I'm very excited about being part of, uh, of this machinery 
to broadcast. And I just had a simple revelation in my head that we got to keep broadcasting to the world. Share it with your friends. Tell them you've heard about a great pro- uh, a podcast that'll help you learn Torah and the other great podcast on the network and the other great podcast on Sulam Yaakov. You get you got to share it. You got to share the the the, the knowledge. Maybe share Dvar Torah at work, whatever it is. But definitely also be a broadcaster and a rebroadcaster. Uh, we are uh, being resettled here in the land of Israel after 2,000 years. His word is what's being fulfilled here. His prophecy is coming true. And it is awesome on top of it all. It is just plain awesome. And we are broadcasting from the heart of the world, Jerusalem, the heart of the heart, Nachlaot, Beit Jar Sulam Yaakov, on the way to the third temple. Rabbi Mike, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Stay tuned. Stay connected. Stay strong. Stay a storyteller. Write me an email at yishaythelandofisrael.com. And see you next week. God bless you wherever you are. And shalom. Rabbi Isaac Nissenbaum, one of the founders of the religious Zionist Mizrahi movement, wrote, The objective of Mizrahi is the total revival of our nation in all its aspects, to revive Judaism in our hearts and to revive our hearts for Judaism. The Land of Israel Network is powered by the Mizrahi World Movement. Hello, my name is Tommy Waller. I'm the founder and president of Hayovel. More than 12 years ago, I made my first trip to the Land of Israel. What I saw and heard changed my life forever. I stood with Nir Levi, an Orthodox Jewish man in his vineyard in Samaria on the Mountain of Blessing. There he opened his Bible and read the prophecy of Jeremiah that said, You shall yet plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. This fall, during the grape harvest, we have the opportunity to join Israel as it celebrates the 50th year of the liberation of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Come join us as we witness the unveiling of prophecy in the Jubilee year. Come be a part of the biblical narrative. Go to Hayovel.com. That's H-A-Y-O-V-E-L.com to find out more. And I hope to see you there.